watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and today we have for you four movies. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, A Quiet Passion, Buster's Malhart, and Risk. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being the highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life's too short for that mess. Jason, what's uh, what's up with you? We have four movies today. We're gonna we're gonna hit these quick, but mm-hmm. uh, just always interested in what's going on with you. Well, that's sweet of you to ask. Uh, well, the main thing that I want to call out is uh, listeners of last week's episode will remember that we had a special guest. His mm-hmm. name is Andrew Hamp, uh, old friend of mine, and um, we would just like to expend extend special congratulations to Andrew because the day after we taped with him. He proposed to his boyfriend, Brian, Mm. at the Conservatory of Flowers in San Francisco, and I was the photographer, and I knew it was going to happen, and I knew it was going to happen while we were sitting here, and we were talking about it before we taped, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) because his uh, his boyfriend, now fiancé, was arriving uh, in San Francisco shortly after we were done, so... Uh, so it was a really special moment, and very exciting uh, to be there for it, and to be with Andrew in the days leading up to that that lifetime, uh, you know, milestone type moment. So congratulations to the happy couple. Congratulations from the binge to Andrew and Brian. Uh, so that was that was the big highlight for me from past week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rebecca, what's up with you? Uh, not too much. Uh, my dad's in town visiting, which is really fun. Um, it's his first time out here, so taking him around all of the places. Definitely didn't bring him here now because this is no place for a parent. Um, but yeah, it's been great. It's, it's nice to see your city as a as a tourist sometimes when you go do things you wouldn't normally do. Yeah, absolutely. It's real nice. Real pretty looking. It's a real nice city. Apparently, we yeah. live here. You should go out more. I know. Stop watching so many goddamn movies. <laughs> go outside. Sorry, guys. Final <laughs> podcast. We've become we're outdoor people now. <laughs> we're gonna go hiking after this. <laughs> We just, we would never oh, do that. Oh, that would never happen. We would never, ever do that. Movie number one this week is Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Peter Quill and his fellow Guardians are hired by a powerful alien race, the Sovereign, to protect their precious batteries from invaders. When it is discovered that the rocket has stolen the items they were sent to guard, the Sovereign dispatch their armada to search for vengeance. As the Guardians try to escape, the mystery of Peter's parentage is revealed. Does anybody have any tape out there? I want to put some tape over the death button. Nobody has any tape. Not a single person has tape. You have an atomic bomb in your bag. If anybody's going to have tape, it's you. I have to do everything. You are wasting a lot of time. That's a really bad sign. So Guardians of the Galaxy, um, in terms of the superhero movies, uh, the ones that you hold up high, uh, Deadpool, one, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This one? Yeah. Uh, Is there another one? The one you really love? Um, I mean, those two have a lot in common because they are um, just really funny and irreverent, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know they just lack a certain a self seriousness that mm-hmm. can really zap the fun out of a out of a superhero movie. Christopher Nolan, Christopher Nolan, um, you know, oh, the, well, the first Avengers, the first Avengers, mm-hmm. I also like very much. And you like the X Men series. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> does this shirt look good on me? <laughs> yes. Uh, the first two X Men movies I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, the, the the I think the through line between Avengers, Deadpool, and the first Guardians movie is this thing I'm talking about, which is that they don't take themselves seriously. They have this kind of scrappy underdog charm to them. 
um, despite the fact that, you know, these are still giant, you know, mega budget uh, Marvel enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they are um, they felt like breaths of fresh air um, compared to how serious a lot of these movies were. Mm-hmm. And um, but so far, the sequels have not replicated mm-hmm. that charm. So the Avengers sequel, Age of Ultron, was just interminable. Um, it 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 sort of bought in too much. You could just tell that you know the the strain of trying to replicate what worked so well the first time mm-hmm. just ultimately was the unraveling of the movie. And I hate to say that that happens with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two as well. Really, um, it just doesn't work the way the first movie did. Um, it and and honestly, it's because there's a certain there's a self-seriousness to it now. Like, it, it does the thing that the first one was so great for not doing, which is it buckles down into this sort of, like, self-seriousness regarding um, questions of, as you said in the summary of Peter's parentage. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Um, you know, we have this father figure emerge, played by Kurt Russell, uh, and, uh, and it goes down a very, very serious, grim path with that storyline. Um, which recalls on Chris Pratt to do what I'm pretty sure is, is his first ever, like, dramatic acting. Oh, how does that work? Not great. Mm. So Chris Pratt is a, let's say, a limited actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the strings he does have, you know, are seemingly boundless in terms of his charm and mm-hmm. his humor. Um, but, you know, in Jurassic Park, that was not such a, or Jurassic World, rather. It wasn't necessarily a humorous role. But that was also just like a very surface action guy, kind of like, whoa, you know, kind of, you know, like just an action mode. Right, right. This is the first time I've seen him attempt pathos in a movie. Oh. And he doesn't do it super great. It's a little rough to watch as like a longtime, you know, Pratt fan. Mm-hmm. So that's not great. It's a combination of a self-seriousness and also of being incredibly self-satisfied with its humor. Oh no! So it's sort of like it, it. It's this is what happens when a movie goes from being the underdog to being the champ. Mm-hmm. There's a Guardians of the Galaxy. Looking at you, Golden State Warriors. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but yes, uh, you know the first movie was. You know this was not a super well known property. You mm-hmm. know it's not like an iconic. It's not like a Spider Man, Batman, whatever. Like people outside of the you know dedicated readership were not familiar with Guardians of the Galaxy and Nerdverse in the Nerdverse and even the cast. I mean, Chris Pratt was more or less untested mm-hmm. uh, when he as a Hollywood leading man, and this was the role that turned him into one of the biggest actors in the world. And uh, you know, you had like you know you had Zachary or not Zachary, you had Bradley Cooper, mm-hmm. but in a voiceover role only. Uh, Vin oh, right, Diesel, Vin Diesel in a voiceover role only. Uh, you know, so on screen, it was basically just um, Chris Pratt and then Zoe Saldana and, you know, heavily made up um, mm-hmm. and um, Dave Bautista, who I think is like a wrestler. Uh, so there, re- <laughs> there really wasn't a lot going for it, although it did also have one thing. The second one doesn't. And that is Glenn Close. And I will blame the whole failure on that. <laughs> when you don't bring Glenn Close back for round two, your movie's going to suffer. Um, but, you know, so now it's come in and it's sort of like, OK, like now we know what our, you know, it's almost like a branding thing. It's almost like when the first movie succeeded, mm. they're like, okay, now this is our brand. And so we have to really play into our brand super hard the second time. And, uh, and it, and it, it, it's just not, it, it lacks the lightness of touch and you just feel it trying really, really hard to, to repeat what felt effortless. Yeah. 
uh, in the first movie. I mean, it seems like a natural thing that that could happen to an enterprise when you have such a such a high success. Mm-hmm. It's and it's hard to do. I mean, we see a lot with um, albums that come out with mm-hmm. bands that do really good albums, and sometimes it should just be that. Sometimes it should just be the first one. Yeah, um, but this has I the know. same uh, same writers, same directors. It does. It does. Same... It's James Gunn, and uh, you know, I'm surprised. But I mean, like. Because, you know, based on his background, I mean, this is like a dyed-in-the-wool nerd filmmaker, mm-hmm. just like Joss Whedon on Avengers. Mm-hmm. But Joss Whedon came back and wrote and directed the second Avengers movie, too. And that one also, you know, it just wasn't great. So, and I think that, I mean, I don't know what's going on behind closed doors in terms of, like, if the Marvel brass give these guys more leeway or less mm-hmm. um, when it comes time to do a sequel. Let's see. What was the, the difference, the time difference? The first one came out in 2014. So they mm-hmm. had about... I mean, shooting takes on something like this probably uh, at least a year, maybe. I would think the entire uh, production life cycle would be at least a year and a half or something like that, just because there's so much in terms of post with all the effects. Mm, and right. So I, I wonder if it was yeah. like they try to push too hard to get a story out the door um, while seems... the, uh, what's it called, the fire's still hot? Or right, exactly. The... Yeah, Strike While the Iron was hot. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and they tried, and uh, and it seems like it just, and it's sort of like, okay, now this time, you know, we're going to give them all the action and laughs, but we're going to also get them to take us seriously. And it's mm. like, no, you shouldn't have done that. Um, you know, you've betrayed what worked so well about the first film. So is it is it that this movie is a big disappointment compared to the first one, or is it also not that great to watch on its own? Um, You know, on its own, I don't know how it would... Like, if somebody hadn't seen the first one and just watched this, I don't know what they would make of it. I think that it's... Uh, I mean, it has some laughs, but more often than not, it feels like it's straining for laughs. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, you know, it, it's just jokes that don't land um, or just like cheesy fucking straight guy humor, like just saying David Hasselhoff's name as if that will always like elicit a huge laugh. Mm. Um, <laughs> David yeah, Hasselhoff. Right. Uh, you're like, it worked. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that works for me. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure that part of it was James Gunn being like, okay, if you want to like keep the reins of this, you have to like fucking move on this script and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, uh, and, and it shows, you know, it feels a little rushed and also feels very long. This movie is like two hours and 16 minutes long. Oh, wow. Which I mean, like, it's hard to be easy breezy. And also be almost two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it feels labored. Um, and it's just it, it's it's rough. It's rough to to watch it kind of flail um, and and be so strained. Where the first movie was so seamless, hmm. so that's that made it a, a tough thing uh, to watch at times. And and it does have you know it does have some laughs that do land. Most of the funniest lines actually do go to Dave Bautista as Drax. Uh, but uh, and there's also a great performance by Elizabeth Debicki uh, from The Great Gatsby uh, as this sort of like space queen. Uh, but, you know, all in all, it just kind of succumbs to, of uh, you know, both taking itself too seriously and being high on its own supply uh, with its humor. How about this whole Groot sitch? The Groot sitch. So, like, <laughs> I don't care about Groot. I'm sorry. I don't, oh, I don't okay. care. Uh, you know, I mean, like, it's I get that, like, you know, yeah, was I moved at the end of the first movie with what happens to Groot originally? Yes, I was. Um, is Baby Groot cute? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but again, it, I think it, it, if anything, it, it speaks to that that that, that just that self satisfied quality mm. of being there. Like, oh, you know what? Falls fails. Just bring out Groot. Groot's untouchable. And so <laughs> you know, so they just like trot out Groot, you know, at length. And uh, and it's sort of like okay, like it's it, it is a one note joke. Yeah, you shouldn't like lean as heavily on Groot <laughs> to deliver like the humor and heart of the movie. They do that whole standalone Groot series. <laughs> 
And it's so strange. And also, just when you picture Vin Diesel, that big fucking lump, uh, you know, like in the in the you know audio booth, because you know, saying "I am Groot" in various intonations, and then having it fed through this filter that makes it sound like a baby voice, it's almost disturbing. <laughs> Um, so as an action movie, of course, we're always missing when there's an opportunity for uh, Michelle Rodriguez to be in it, and she's mm. not. So that's always um, a black mark on the name. It's true. I mean, like, she could have easily been cast in the Zoe Saldana role. Mm-hmm. Or she even has a... Zoe Saldana has a sister in this movie, who I'm pretty sure is played by a white actress. Oh, great. Uh, named Karen Gillan. Although these are aliens, and their skin are... Like, Zoe Saldana's skin is green, and the sister's skin is blue. So it's a bit kind of... So when in doubt, cast white. <laughs> right, yeah, and I think, I think, yeah, I think so they could have cast a black woman or an they, Asian woman, or yeah, and she, and this, this was a woman who was in the first movie too, and I'm pretty sure she was in like the Doctor Who movies or mm. TV shows rather, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so <laughs> to say, you know, just strictly speaking of uh, where we could have plugged <laughs> Mishy, Mishy in, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I'm looking Karen Gillan up to make sure I'm not talking out of my ass yet. No, she's like, she's like. Oh yeah! Oh, she's hung her back a picture. She has the red hair. Yeah, she, she's she's a full. She's like as white white ginger as you get. So, and she plays always Aldana's space sister. Ah, oh, gotcha. You're my space sister. Oh, you are. <laughs> what are you going to give this movie? I'm going to give it to consumer moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that you know, I, I completely sympathize with how how challenging it is to try to repeat success, especially when it is as kind of out of left field as the first movie was. Mm-hmm. This is why I think we should all be saying a daily prayer for Barry Jenkins as he <laughs> as he figures out what to do after Moonlight. Um, but you know, uh, with that said, also, did you see the photos of uh, Barry Jenkins and Isabel Huber hanging out at the Met Gala? Oh yeah, I mean, like those two are the cutest. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, like it's it's I'm sure it, it's obviously it's really fucking hard, and there's so much pressure, especially when it's like a giant enterprise, like a Marvel movie. Um, but with that said, that doesn't mean that the resulting product is any less mm-hmm. strained. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is rated PG-13 for sequences of sci-fi action and violence, language, and brief suggestive content. And that brings us to movie number two, which is A Quiet Passion. A Quiet Passion is the story of American poet Emily Dickinson, from her early days as a young schoolgirl to her later years as a reclusive, unrecognized artist. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. You are alone in your rebellion, Miss Dickinson. Have you said your prayers? Yes. Though it can't make much difference to the creator. Poems are my solace for the eternity which surrounds us all. One day, you met Harry. Ladies. We have, uh, I don't know, something quite interesting. We have uh, Cynthia Nixon uh, in the biography of Emily Dickinson. Well, I was very excited to get this um, and even more excited to learn that Emily Dickinson was, in fact, the Miranda. <laughs> she was the Miranda of her family. She really was. Well, no, she was sort of a Miranda-Charlotte hybrid. Yeah, yeah, with the whole like self-righteous um, piety um, of Charlotte, but also the general miserableness of Miranda. <laughs> I was going to stay with the sweet innocence of Charlotte. Okay. <laughs> Another reading on the character. <laughs> there, but there's definitely not a Carrie. 
Uh, or Samantha to be found. Not in sight. I mean, those characters, I mean, brother, didn't, those people didn't become people until... Well, Emily's one friend who's especially insufferable is kind of a Samantha. The one, Yeah. 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 Uh, so, which is... Okay, so something to know about this movie, um, beyond the fact that it has what I would consider to be one of the worst titles. Um, <laughs> yes. It just sounds like a self-parody joke. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the performances have this heightened extra performative Mm -hmm. capital a acting quality to them Mm -hmm. like the entire movie is nothing but like acting Mm -hmm. and um which is you know it's very mannered um in that way and i'm assuming that was something that you know the the writer director whose name is terrence davies who's uh this he's an interesting one um so I was going to say he presumably wanted that mm-hmm. from, you know, from the actors, because obviously Cynthia Nixon is one of the greatest living actors, period. Um, Rebecca is not agreeing with me uh, in her facial expression. I don't have I don't have anything to say about that. And also Jennifer Ely, who plays mm-hmm. uh, her sister, Vinny, short for, I believe, Lavinia. Mm-hmm. Um, Jennifer Ely is another one of the greatest, greatest actors. Um, and uh, so these are clearly, these, these women can do any kind of performances asked of them. And what was asked by Terrence Davies is to mm-hmm. give these like very affected performances. Mm-hmm. And um, especially, I think, with Cynthia Nixon in particular, the voiceover poetry readings yes. were especially yeah. tough. Mm-hmm. Um, because she has, you know, she does this kind of high, thin, very, impre- very mannered little girl voice mm-hmm. when she reads these Emily Dickinson poems, and uh, which is it's tough. Uh, it's it's just tough to uh, to hear that and to not be like, what? why are you talking like that? Um, Part of the reason that we're here today, um, you know, another thing that happened to me this week is that uh, I broke my finger uh, in the past two weeks and I had to have surgery on it. And so we were originally going to record on Thursday, um, which is when I had to have surgery and I was I, I couldn't do it. But it was very important to me that I not see this movie in vain and that we <laughs> figure out a way to get together this weekend to review it, this movie. It would have it would have been something that if she would have had to bottle this up, it would have exploded <laughs> in a very violent way at some point, And I probably would have been the one to you suffer probably for would it. Have. It would have been my fault. This is all for this is self care. This is a binge self care right so, here. This is yes, this, review. This, is, this is a processing this is pathos this is just letting it out <laughs> so let's so let's um okay so first i'm gonna go i'm gonna take the the high road and say here's what i wish this movie could have been mm-hmm. um because of and, and and by reflection some of the limitations of the movie is that emily dickinson you know her life and times uh not a lot going on it's a very very <laughs> small story for the last half of her life she doesn't leave her house right um, you know, and it's also in a, in a, I mean, yes, there's like the backdrop of the civil war going on, but basically not a whole lot is happening in her home and her family. Anything that the, the drama is very small. Um, and, and if you have studied her at all, then, you know, you kind of know she, you know, she had this brother and that she, uh, who was married and she maybe had like an affair with and, um, uh, which isn't really, uh, even well, covered cl- that. Clarify the she there. Oh, that Emily Dickinson uh, had like a very, uh, not an affair, that's the wrong phrase, um, long-standing love for. For her brother. For her brother's wife. Wife, right. yeah. Um, so because of this, because of the story of her, I feel like if, if this was taken in a way where the readings of her poems would have been matched up with like some sort of beautiful, beautiful visual artistry of like what was going on in her head, uh, while she was, you know, writing these poems, there could have been. I'm trying to think of a movie that sort of does this. Almost has like a really uh, beautiful dream life that you can see. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to spending 
two hours and five minutes on just the actual uh you know showing them and their family in the events so i think it would have been really cool there's there's some points where like they sort of try to do that because you know so much of her um poetry you know is a like has like flower references and a Mm -hmm. lot of like floral um they just like stop focus on like a floral arrangement for minutes at a time and Mm -hmm. like read her poetry over it which is unbearable (laughs) they could have really had like maybe some animators almost like a what was that children's movie we saw with the tree in the backyard that was a monster tell- calls. A monster calls. If they would have had some kind of like, like visual storytelling while she was reading her poems, um, to show the like really exciting things that were going on inside mm. her head, right? As opposed in- to the dull monotony of going of going on in her actual life. That I think that's it- interesting to imagine. Yeah, to imagine like it could have been an opportunity for some cool animation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think I think that's true. Um, so, but I think this is where I would bring up again this filmmaker Terrence Davies. Uh, so who I think probably the most well-known movie he directed is, um, was the adaptation of the house of mirth that starred, um, Gillian Anderson Mm -hmm. from 2000. Uh, so Terrence Davies, um, identifies quite a bit with the character of Emily Dickinson, um, because he is, so Terrence Davies is in some ways, I guess to use the word problematic, but in an interesting way. So he's a gay man, um, but he is a man who has talked openly in the press about how he hates being gay. Hmm. And he's a self-identified celibate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and also he's talked about like, he's like, not that it matters that I, I say celibacy is a choice, but I am an ugly man and no one wants anything to do with me. And hmm. so I think that he... Apparently he doesn't know gay men. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not no. at all a barrier of entry. Into- <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I think that... So he, you know, he really, you know, identifies with um, the sort of like entirely cerebral. um, Misanthropic weirdo. Yes, absolutely. He is that. He is an entirely cerebral misanthropic weirdo. And so he identifies with that piece of Emily Dickinson. Sure. Yeah. And he's also and he's an artist and she's an artist. And so he is very interested in like how this woman lived her whole life and created, you know, volumes of what would be eventually considered some of the greatest sort of certainly American poetry Mm -hmm. ever written. Um, was not appreciated in her lifetime, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is any any artist's, you know, sort of like, you know, um, you know, back burner dream. It's like, well, if nothing works out for me in this life, maybe right. afterward, you know, so it's like the ultimate like posthumous vindication that like now I'm thought is great. I wasn't appreciated at all in my day. Um, so, you know, it's funny. I think this movie, it occurred to me while we're talking that Emily Dickinson is sort of the ultimate snowflake. <laughs> 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 the movie certainly presents her as the ultimate snowflake because she's so fragile mm-hmm. and she's yeah. so sensitive and she is so firm about like protecting um, her sense of herself and so self righteous and yeah, and I guess that part I didn't pick up on as much because you know because I feel like she wasn't ever really there were things that she raged against that I thought like should be raged against um, and but you know but but talk about that the self righteousness. This is, I think it comes up more, uh, at least around the end, when she sort of just sort of has, she's the person in your family that doesn't leave their room but has something to say about what everyone's doing and how it's wrong, um, which is really like just a family uh, dynamic that I was not interested that much in, in of all, again, of all the things she had to offer, that was really well, not the most interesting. I mean, I guess the thing with Emily Dickinson, though, is that like she chose her family to be the only thing she would ever care about. Mm-hmm. And she says that in the movie. Her family is her entire life. Mm-hmm. And that certainly bears itself out because she, you know, doesn't which leave. Which is fun for she, them which, and fun for us. 
<laughs> because eventually she stops leaving the house, as you mentioned. And and so it really is about these just very intense kind of cloistered relationships with her siblings, with her parents. And since she cares about them so much, you know, she does sort of like get very passionate and fiery whenever things happen that she feels like are going to compromise or diminish mm-hmm. um, the relationships. And since that's literally, as far as she's concerned, all that she has in this life. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was willing to go there with her on that. There is, there's like, there's some wit in the first half of this movie. There's like some funny bits. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to, I was thinking when I'm watching it that like <laughs> the alternate title for this movie should have been Church Giggles. <laughs> Church Giggles the movie. <laughs> because there's just so much, especially the relationship between Emily and her sister Vinny is so much just like the two of them like looking at each other and giggling mm-hmm. um, in the face of society's mores. Mm-hmm. And so much of the movie is about Emily. You know, just jokes about opera. And just, just like, oh. And the opera, can you imagine? Fanny. Um, <laughs> um, so much of the film is about Emily chafing against the mores of the time and what was expected of her and against certainly against uh, the oppression of the religious norms of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and Emily sort of furiously fighting for her own space to experience spirituality um, mm-hmm. outside of organized religion. And Cynthia Nixon is dynamite in these scenes when she will just refuse you know Mm -hmm. to cooperate and do what's being asked of her um so you know so i feel like the movie ultimately it does paint this big portrait of this figure who is difficult to try to make a film about you Mm -hmm. know i think i think that walking away from it you know i think it's it made me feel like i could understand who emily dickinson was and it didn't bother trying to make her especially likable it really presented her Mm -hmm. as a very complicated kind of you know warts and all figure um, that you could see why she was a fucking handful, <laughs> um, you know, but like this was the life that led, you know, that, that produced that poetry in her. Um, and I had a quote that I found. So John Waters in his top 10 films of 2016 list, he did include a quiet passion. Really? It was his number 10. And he wrote, and I quote, the grim curse of Emily Dickinson's poetic talent has never been shown with such depressing clarity. If you can't enjoy suffering along with her, you should be dead too. <laughs> so I'll plus one what John Waters said there. Um, I thought, I mean, I thought that I, one part that was like kind of the final disappointment of this movie is when they show um, her death, they like recite the poem about death that she, the, the famous one, which, which was just a little too on the nose. Well, and the film does show such a preoccupation that she has with death. So death and suffering and, you know, her, her she goes through some losses and then eventually at the end of the movie she dies and this movie does not uh spare <laughs> you at one moment there are there is a like a 5 minute long seizure scene there's like there are really really intense and really disturbing uh yeah. uh long shots of people dying um and people suffering mm-hmm. uh from these these sort of diseases and it is really hard to watch i found that just really really difficult it's very, yeah, it's for sure unpleasant and uncomfortable. Um, I found something like that so much more uncomfortable than when you see like, um, you know, like like a really graphic war movie mm-hmm. uh, where or you're like, oh, that's some like... <laughs> <laughs> that was the other thing. There was, there's actually one scene, one like sort of scene of passion in this movie and I was like getting water or something and I was like, oh, another seizure. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm just hearing a woman like gasping like, again. Like, you oh, know it's not actually... a sex scene. Except for it was. You know, some people were like, they were actually making out and it was, yeah. I was very shocked. Um, as was as was Emily. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Shocked and she really miranda out on that one. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, really? Really, Carrie? Really? <laughs> you just like feel it just bubbling up inside of her. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, yeah, you like you see those war movies, and you're like, okay, well, that's like a fake arm or whatever. Right. But this, well, like, I, watching her reenact these, and yet it was still just scenes. acting. It's, it was so hard to watch. I mean, it was. Yeah, I mean, the the, the seizure scenes are. Um, yeah, I mean, they. It's you're like I was just in awe of her performance watching those scenes, of like how convincing and realistic she was mm-hmm. able to like simulate these very long seizures. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did text friend of the show and noted Cynthia Nixon enthusiast George Northey to let him know <laughs> that there would be some Cynthia Nixon um, seizure gif opportunities that would come out of... Because, I mean, there's a great reaction gif. <laughs> Just Cynthia Nixon wildly seizing on, on like, a oh, chaise. Oh, man. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, and those, I, I, I don't consider those scenes to be a mark against the film at all. Um, I think it was very much in keeping with the sort of... Um, the themes and you know the sort of overall experience of what Davies wanted um, people to take away from watching this account of mm-hmm. Emily Dickinson's uh, relatively short life. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess my major complaint about this movie is that I think that I think that you know there are people who definitely love Emily Dickinson. A lot of those people are these sort of you know misanthropes who don't feel very connected. You know, you're like in high school and you feel very like mm-hmm. um, isolated and you don't you know kind of get along with everyone. You're so like, this we're more like loners. To me. Yeah, I, misanthrope makes me think of like a person who hates the world. I feel like Emily Dickinson's poetry was so inherently like not I mean if not optimistic then at least almost beatific you know just like very like nature and flowers and hope and yes but I still think of emotional. like the if you kind of relate to to her you you sort of think of yourself Maybe as you're someone antisocial yeah antisocial. antisocial yeah um so I think that there was just a a real opportunity here to uh intro- and, and you know I guess the, the filmmaker had an, you know clearly mm-hmm. has a different agenda mm-hmm. but there was an opportunity to really kind of open up and make her more approachable um to a lot more people and it could have been uh much more interesting um as someone who again wasn't really a fan of Emily Dickinson going in I this just further solidified um how kind of dull <laughs> I found the whole situation You're like, now I'm just like hate the bitch <laughs> <laughs> and now I feel like I have reason yeah now I will um, never have to revisit that question again this movie answered it for me once and for all uh, it was just really it was really hard for me to watch I uh it was definitely a phone a, a phone movie like if your phone's around put it away <laughs> so with that said where are you going to give it I'm going to give it a send it back I am going to give it a binge it. Wow. I mean, mm-hmm. I could see people who were, would really like this movie. Yeah. But I, I mean, could I am see a fusty old would, queen. <laughs> so, and it was made by a fusty old queen. So, so if you have any uh, hope or life or vitality left, <laughs> avoid this movie. If you're a withered, withered old prune, if you'll love it. Right. If you're, if you're in the crone crew, <laughs> you will love this movie. Uh, a Quiet Passion is rated PG-13 for thematic elements, disturbing images, seizures, <laughs> and brief suggestive material. Uh, very, very brief. That brings us to movie number three, which is Buster's Mall Heart. An eccentric mountain man is on the run from authorities, surviving the winter by breaking into empty vacation homes in a remote community, regularly calling into radio talk shows, where he has acquired the nickname Buster, to rant about the impending inversion at the turn of the millennium. He is haunted by visions of being lost at sea, and memories of his former life as a family man. Buster has managed to evade capture for years. The identity of the mountain man remains a mystery. How can I help you? I need a room. I'm the last free man. I feel like I know you. Everything these days is designed to trap a man. Eternal recurrence of the almost same, over and over again. Are you okay? 
No. What's your title? Concierge. Means fellow slave. A cosmological storm, a brand new cycle. Bang! No escape! You become part of the cycle, the same thing. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, um, here's Buster's Malhart, uh, starring Rami Malek, um, from Mr. Robot. Um, and like Mr. Robot. He's insane. <laughs> like Mr. Robot, he plays a disturbed young man, uh, who, uh, is very unsure about the lines that separate reality from fantasy, mm-hmm. from hallucination. Um, like Mr. Robot, we have multiple timelines mm-hmm. that are not immediately apparent and, don't necessarily ever quite fully snap into focus Mm -hmm. as far as how they relate to each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like Mr. Robot, you find Rami Malek both uh, lovable and terrifying. Like Mr. Robot, Rami Malek is brilliant Mm -hmm. in this movie. Um, Um, He goes there. He goes through it. He gives everything in this movie. mm -hmm. Um, And and like Mr. Robot, I find myself very attracted to him. Incredibly, he's very attractive. Oh, he's so um, cute. He was wearing in this in this movie. He plays uh, like a hotel manager kind of um, who works overnights, and his little uniform is like this kind of like brown shirt and tie. And he almost looks like he's wearing like a like an army private uniform. Mm. I feel like has he been in a military movie yet? Because he looks so much like he could be in like a nineteen forties World War Two movie. He was in The Master. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah. He did it. Paul Thomas Anderson saw it first. He did. He saw it. He always does. He does. He does. He's right there at the beginning. And uh, like Mr. Robot, this also involves kind of conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny. And at times. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, but I would say also similarly to Mr. Robot, this has occasional detours into very dark, disturbing, Mm -hmm. violent subject matter. Mm -hmm. And overall... I found this movie to be punishing. Yes. Really punishing to watch. Yes. Um, and not in a way that ultimately is redeemed. No. Like, not worth it. No, like, this puts you through the ring. It, it really does. So uncomfortable. So much just, like, mental anguish watching this movie. And it doesn't give you anything in exchange mm-hmm. for that. Other than Rami Malek's incredible multi-layered performance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, you know, this, so I don't even know how to describe this without sort of giving it out or, uh, even that I understood it to tell. This could have been a spoil that shit, I guess. I guess it could have. But, you know, I, I mean, I, this is another movie that I saw at TIFF, so it's been seven months since I saw it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I actually, I mean, think I, I watched in a theater, so I was not on my phone. I was watching it the entire time. Mm -hmm. And still I was like, at the end, I was like, What? Um, yeah. Like it ends with a real head scratcher, and I guess yeah. you know some some things I was looking at were saying, oh, this movie is like just like really like cerebral sci-fi, mm. um, and I'm like, mm. oh, you may be giving it too much credit. I think that you know the movie is pulling off; it's attempting to pull off something very ambitious, but I think it does not pull that off, and as a result, is mainly just a head scratcher. Yeah, I'd say the two things that took that took away from the from what could have been a really great movie. One is that where um, if it would have resolved itself a little bit. Um, it it would have it would have felt worth it. It wouldn't have felt like you again just sort of went through the ringer for nothing. And the second thing is that it does parallel um Fight Club in mm-hmm. a way where mm-hmm. where it's enough to make it feel like it it didn't quite do enough. So it's like it took enough from that movie to make mm-hmm. it seem like it wasn't original, but then it didn't resolve itself in an interesting way. So it also was kind of like what's what's the point? Yeah, because you, you have this you have this guy who is really uh, pushed to his limits. 
um, by, you know, uh, what happens inevitably when you don't get enough sleep Mm -hmm. and you're pushed by responsibility and maybe you have some bad influences and um, it ends up being a real tragedy for him. Yes. Uh, He escapes and kind of does this mountain wandering thing, which is where Mm -hmm. we sort of pick pick him up in the movie. Right. Um, And he's sort of on the run from the authorities and he's been breaking into these vacation homes. And he's fully into uh, mental collapse at this point. Like mm-hmm. he's, he breaks in these homes. He like, you know, has these draw, makes these, uh, his imagery around. He's obsessed with this thing called the inversion, which is basically like the end of time. But mm-hmm. it's like time is the circle and you have to kind of go in at the same time you go out. A lot of thing about it, a lot of things referencing that it's two butts. <laughs> um, a lot of people make fun of his theories saying it's two butts. Um but yeah, that's the part. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, what I didn't like about um, Arrival is that at the very end, there were these questions that I had that weren't really resolved. And it's like, mm. if you're going to try to make this like ambitious movie, kind of mm. like close it up in a way that makes a little bit more sense. Otherwise, it just feels like complete nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I guess with Arrival, though, at least it was a much more satisfying emotional experience to watch yes. the movie. Yes. Um, and even if it did leave some, some you know, some open threads at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like, you know, all art is, you know, like there's a lot of things that kind of almost by necessity need to be left open-ended if you're going to have anything that suggests like the human experience or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, but at least with Arrival, I, you know, you feel very satisfied by a lot of what's happened by the end. If you're someone mm-hmm. who, if you're someone who enjoyed the film, I know it has some <laughs> very vocal detractors among our listener base. Um, but with Buster's Mal Heart, like it gave me nothing except for, you know, fucking anxiety. Yeah. Um, and you know, which I will say is, is a credit to the, to the, um, the filmmaker, the female filmmaker, I don't have her name on me, but it's her mm-hmm. second film. And uh, she does, I mean, she gives you primal suspense in this film. Yes. Just gut-churning primal suspense. And she gives you, a, you know, a very evocative depiction of this sort of, this, this mental state where your insomnia, your sleeplessness has, has, has taken you so far away mm-hmm. from any grounded reality that anything seems possible. Um, so she... Oh, her name is Sarah Adina Smith. There it is. So Sarah Adina Smith is... is a very promising filmmaker for sure. I'd love to see what else she has. So I think the faults with this are in mm-hmm. the writing, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think the direction is very successful. The acting is very successful. It's just that the writing is just like, what the fuck? Um, it just doesn't come together. And it puts you through too much not to come together in some sort of rewarding way at the end. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, the they have this little girl who plays his daughter. Um, so he's married. Um, he has a daughter. It's clear that they're a young couple that have had some problems. He has a criminal record. She was in drugs. They now live with her parents and their little girl. And he's just trying to make it work as a, as a hotel manager. He's forced working nights. Uh her parents are kind of insufferable. So, you know, it's every day is just hard that, you know, it's like the TV's too loud. The kid needs too much. The work is too much. And he, he runs into this drifter who comes into the hotel. who's paid, played by DJ Qualls, who you might remember from road trip. <laughs> oh, takes me back. <laughs> I was takes like, who is that? Oh my God, that's him. Uh, cause he looks exactly the same, just older. Yep. And he's, uh, you know, he clearly is, uh, all the way down this road of like talking about the inversion, how he's this prophet and he's coming through to try to, you know, this is actually takes place in the nineties because they're talking about Y2K right. and how that's coming. And, mm. you know, it's just like another sign. It's very like uh, apocalyptic um, end of times. Uh, I don't know, crazy talk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so eventually he kind of becomes friends with this guy. They, you know, they talk all night 
and um it 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 leads him to this this break and then um once this this sort of tragedy plays out at the height of his break he's he's then on the run um trying to tell others about the inversion and then being uh sort of lightly hunted by authorities mm-hmm. uh they're just trying to capture him really yeah um and then they throw in this other timeline which is and we can talk about this because this is what, yeah. what, what this is what is not resolved, mm. and so there really isn't any spoiler. And you see it in the trailers that uh, you start seeing these clips of of Rami Malek in this boat by himself at sea, um, mm. doing nothing except like eating frogs to continue to to survive. Mm-hmm. And so you have you know it's supposed it's present time, and you have him in the mountains and living in these houses, and you have him in this boat, and they're supposed to be the same person. And there was like a mistake in time, therefore he's like both this Hispanic man living on this boat that's lost at sea on this boat and he's also himself yeah which you find out just because like they found this guy in the boat you hear in the news mm-hmm. but you're not quite sure if how that exists or right. or where where that happens and, and and when they show kind of the last flashback they show him at the last point before he kind of escaped to the mountains and he literally he physically splits right. into two people yeah and then you're I guess let's believe one of that per, one of that one of those hymns mm-hmm. becomes a Hispanic man that then gets one lost of those at sea, busters. and then Buster the other one, one Buster two. yeah, Buster two goes up in the mountains. But like, that's which it doesn't really, make any sense to me. It doesn't. I don't know if that's the inversion. I don't know what what that is. And you know, like I will, you know, I feel like I'm sure, like if filmmakers will listen to or read reviews like this, they're probably just like just to have the courage to say you don't get it. So sure, I will say I don't I get did, it. I didn't get it. But I, I don't think it's my fault. <laughs> right. <laughs> I really yeah. don't. I, I mean, I really, I feel like I tried, you know, I paid attention. And at the end, I was mm-hmm. still like, what the fuck? So, yeah, I didn't get it. And I was very, I was irritated that it had put me through so much emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately, it just like left with this like intentionally, aggressively kind of like um, ostentatious, experimental type image of like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, sure. So we'll just literally splits into two people. And hey, that explains it, right? No, it does not. <laughs> it does not explain no, it. It because seems split into two people because that's not a real thing. And it's like, it, maybe if he had always been two people and one mm-hmm. was like in another part of the world, mm-hmm. but how did he like right. become this and man named... symbolism. Right. Who has a mother who speaks Spanish on television that's missing him at sea. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other... Li- no, I really, mm-hmm. I profoundly do not get it. And, Which is a um, real bummer. And I think that, you know, I resent, uh, you know, films that I guess, and I'm sure there are people who love, I mean, like, in you know, you're someone who, you know, Mulholland Drive is one of your favorite movies of all time, you know, so you, mm-hmm. you don't need your movies to no. resolve themselves at all Mm-mm. if they give you um, a rewarding experience when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie does not give you a rewarding experience, it gives you a punishing experience mm-hmm. and it still leaves everything unresolved and leaves you with way more questions that you get just in its final moments. Yes. Um, and you're like, what the fuck? So I'm sure there are people out there who love, if you love like a puzzle box movie mm-hmm. um, that absolutely is a challenge, um, then you'll love Buster's Malheart. But um, but yeah. Um, and also fans of Rami Malek certainly should check it out because it's, yeah. it's his first lead role in a movie and he is amazing mm-hmm. with very heady um, um, material. I'm going to give it a consume. Yeah, I also would give it a consume, mainly for him, and also mm-hmm. just to you know, just to um, you know, encourage this 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 filmmaker. Who I think you know, I mm-hmm. I do want to see what else she can do because it's interesting stuff. It's just ultimately it, it just doesn't come together in any way that makes you happy that you watched it. Yeah, which is a shame. Yeah, um, it's unrated, but it would probably be R for violence and language. Uh, and that brings us to our last uh, movie of the week, which is Risk. 
Filmed over six years, Risk is a character study that collides with a high-stakes election year and its controversial aftermath. Cornered in a tiny building for half a decade, Julian Assange is undeterred even as a legal jeopardy he faces threatens to undermine the organization he leads and fracture the movement he inspired. Capturing the story, director Laura Poitras finds herself caught between the motives and contradictions of Assange and his inner circle. Oh, hello. Can I please speak to Hillary Clinton? I'm calling from the office of Julian Assange. This is an emergency. This is not the film I thought I was making. I thought I could ignore the contradictions. I thought they were not part of the story. I was wrong. They are becoming the story. So, Jason, you watched this movie, um, mm-hmm. Solo. Yeah. Um, going into it, is this what you expected? Uh, did you know there was going to be a uh, part of uh, discussing the election? No, no, I did not. Um, so because, you know, it, it that all still happened fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently the story with Risk is Laura Poitras uh, screened this at Cannes last year in May in a completely different edit. Uh and um, and it had like I guess it had like a ten chapter structure because she had been embedded filming with Assange since 2010, and um, and so and she had been going on this journey with him, and then after everything that happened last fall uh, with the role that WikiLeaks played mm-hmm. in you know the sort of like the Russian orchestrated takedown of Hillary Clinton's campaign, um, she realized that she had to go back in and change it. And um, and the resulting film feels very it feels very kind of unfinished in a way because you can tell I mean she apparently mm. this this is a movie that had multiple press um, uh, releases that were delayed because she was like I just need to go back in so up until this movie really appeared out of nowhere um, like it wasn't really uh, in terms of like when it felt it suddenly became available to be watched by the press like it, there was no warning. Um, so it was definitely something where she was working right up until the very, 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 very last second on basically on her own timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once she was finally done with it, that's when the distributors were then like, okay, the movie's done now. It's actually picture lock. Now we can show it to the press because we're just getting it out there as soon as possible. Um, and uh, it is, uh, it's fascinating in the sense that it's almost a documentary about making a documentary. Hmm. Um, although it doesn't quite commit to that, it would have been a lot better if it would have. So it's basically a, a, a mishmash of the movie that she thought that she was that she wanted to make, mm-hmm. and then all this kind of post um, post shoot fiddling and editorializing that she's now done with it to like put these little bits of voiceover over it and be like, I am conflicted on him now. Um, and, uh, so because she does feel so, you know, she started to make this film thinking that he was, you know, some kind of hero, presumably, because this is the woman who made Citizen Four, mm-hmm, the documentary mm-hmm. about Edward Snowden that won the, um, best documentary Oscar. And, um, you know, and she is somebody who, you know, this is clearly where her political sympathies lie. Mm-hmm. And she's also somebody who, if you you know listen to the trailer, you know she has this sort of maddening, you know, um, sort of martyr complex of like talking about like, well, I was detained in another airport, mm. or like, oh, my door was unlocked, and like all these things where she just like throws them out there, but doesn't really like chronicle them. Mm-hmm. Like she'll mm. just like she she doesn't really like she just like says it and wants you to take her at on face value. Mm. 
Um, and I think that the people who enjoy her films the most don't need any evidence because they believe already that that's right. the way that these things work. And that, like, they're like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, I think that, you know, like, there are certainly a lot of tinfoil hats in her viewership. Sure. Um, and, uh, so she thought that she was making a story about this, 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 this hero, you know, of, 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 of free speech and of transparency of government and da, 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 da. Um, but then not long after she started working with him was when the different sexual assault allegations began to be made against him. Mm-hmm. And so she remained in bed with him while he is um, going through that. And he does not handle that stuff. Well, he makes a lot of very misogynistic comments about like an organized feminist takedown of him oh wow um so and she's kind of you can tell she's like surprised that he is just speaking this this openly and negatively about like women at large in rooms full of like female supporters of his um but like but that's the thing is that he's so revered by Mm -hmm. his like band of followers that like there's like you know i mean he's probably right you know like so he's so so the whole movie ends up being about what happens when you set off to almost make like a hagiography or hagiography. I don't know if you mm-hmm. have that, you know, where you like be this t- portrait, towering portrait of this hero, kind of the way that season four was of Snowden, more or mm-hmm. less. You know, I wouldn't say like it didn't make him. I mean, I feel like it ultimately did kind of make him look like a hero, um, mm. Snowden in that film. But mm-hmm. I think he also probably just in general was just this kind of like he gave her less negative stuff right, to work yeah. with. He was a lot he less. Was a, of he was, a, yeah, he was less of like this like insane, paranoid, delusions of grandeur asshole mm-hmm. the way the way that Assange is. And so, so we watch what happens when the filmmaker and the subject are so close, um, and then they fall out. So currently, you know, by the time they finish the film, Laura and Assange had fallen out. And she talks about that in the movie, briefly, again, in voiceover. Like, there are these things where, you know, she just doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't really, like, cry, she doesn't really show her work a lot. She'll just, like, say these things and, like, not really show you. Mm. She, she's, she, she's really big on, on telling rather than showing. As a movie maker. Yeah, <laughs> which is not great. Choice. Not great as a filmmaking choice. And so you see kind of, like, the impact that his um, kind of complicated, contradictory character has on both his movement. Mm as well as on this film that's being made about him, you know, which, you know, should be this home run, um, you know, as for, you know, painting him as this, you know, persecuted champion. Um, But instead, he is such an asshole Mm -hmm. um, that it just undermines that. And then other allegations come forward. Like there's um, some like second in command to him, this guy named, I think, Jacob Applebaum, uh, who uh, Laura has to admit in the movie that she was had a romantic involvement with at one point. Oh wow! Um, who then also has even though and then she and then it comes out that he had been accused of sexual assault and then Laura says that she knew that he had abused a friend of hers. So there's just so yeah. much like she there's a lot of like ethical questions about yeah. that you like. I, I, I've said I've read some people suggest this and I would have to agree that she should maybe just not put this movie out like mm-hmm. there's just or given the footage to someone else. Um, because there's just so much weirdness that goes on and she never quite as much as she will like show up with her just like, like monotone editorial voiceovers, she'll never really come out and say anything one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like she certainly leads you in certain possession, you know, in certain directions and she'll lightly suggest that she's unsure, you know, like with how everything that came out with, you know, the role that WikiLeaks played with the Russians and everything. And Assange steadfastly maintaining that, you know, they had no, there was no direct contact between them and a state actor from Russia, Hmm. um, you know, that led to this. But, and when it got to that part of the film, as I was saying, as you asked me earlier, I didn't know we were going to actually cover that. 
and they show Assange on the phone with his girlfriend slash partner. And because, you know, Assange has been in the Ecuador London embassy Mm -hmm. um, for years and years now, has not left. And, um, and they show him on the phone with his girlfriend. They're talking about the U.S. election. And, you know, and Assange is like, well, you know, he's like, right. So at this point, it's going to be Trump and Hillary, you know, unless one of them dies or, or has a stroke. And that, of course, is quite bad both ways. And I'm like, I'm like do I have to hear this one more uh. fucking time? And, um, and then he's like, on the, on the one hand, you know, we have Hillary, who is a definite warmonger. And I'm like, oh, Jesus fucking My Christ. Um, and uh, he's like, and on the other, we have Trump, who is... Um, unpredictable I'm like that's 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 the worst thing you wow. can find to say about him he's wow. unpredictable um and uh and then he says in the film he's like you know and we we he, he's like we've had some some interesting stuff come to us some leaks about hillary but with trump we actually there there's nothing weirdly there's just nothing like you we thought we'd find tons with all his business dealings but we actually can't find anything so he actually just flat out says in the wow. movie that there's just nothing. There's nothing about Trump that they that that, that they could find. Um, I'm like, oh, that's a what a strange coincidence. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, and then just him being completely unapologetic um, about the role that WikiLeaks played and what happened. Um, Do you feel like you learned anything from this movie? I mean, and there was already that one. Assange doc, We Steal Secrets by mm-hmm. Alex Gibney, which was very acclaimed, in which I can't remember if it won the best documentary Oscar or not. But um, I mean, it made me, it gave me a new hatred for him. <laughs> um, just watching like his his paranoia um, and the sort of and the and the um, the 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 sense of self importance that comes with his mm-hmm. paranoia is appalling. Um, there's so many, so many, so many scenes of him just talking and then he'll just be like he'll stop and he'll just like look over his shoulder he'll be like someone close that door uh, or you know it's like we must go into the woods uh oh you know like it's like motherfucker like it's really not that severe they just want to yeah do they want do, do they want to come and like take you into custody obviously mm-hmm. but that's it they just want to take you into custody it's like Roman Polanski right. you know he's been yeah. living you know in, in in defiance of custody for decades um so but you know Assange has you know oh and he Someone questions him about the what happened with the election. He's like, well, you have to understand that I look at things with a global perspective. And so from a global perspective, I make the choices I do and not many people can see things the way I see them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, just to rationalize and justify what he did and to absolve himself of any um, guilt or blame. And um, and the film does kind of end as a bit of a fuck you to him from Poitras because um, she shows that despite the fact that candidate Trump was on the side of WikiLeaks because it was working in his favor. Mm-hmm. Now, President Trump and right. administration is like, we, you know, they have, they end with audio quotes from Jeff Sessions being like, you know, we want to put these people in jail mm-hmm. and we take leaks very seriously. Um, so it's like, yep, <laughs> way to go. Are you, are you so glad you got that guy elected? Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, ultimately it's very maddening. The one sort of brilliant, completely out there, unexpected scene is a moment in which. Lady Gaga goes to visit Assange um, in his uh, at the embassy, and based on the way she was styled, I'm going to guess this was circa like 2011, 2012, <laughs> and uh, and she is trying to do this interview with him, and it is one it is like outsider art. It is so awkward and uncomfortable to watch. 
Um, so she's like, she's trying to have this like kind of like um, very um, casual kind of informal chat with him where she's just like, I mean, she's like, I want to know more about like you as a person, you know, like, like what's your favorite color? And he's like, <laughs> and he like senses right away what she's going for. And he's like, well, what I'm not going to do is sit here and talk about myself like I'm a normal person because I'm not a normal person. Oh my god! And um, and she just won't, and and then she keeps just trying to like make him human, mm-hmm. and he just resists at every turn, and is like, no, no, I'm I am a I am a great persecuted figure, and she and oh. and, and they just like they just like set themselves in these in these roles and just like volley back and forth, and she keeps talking over him, and she's like, so you got some people who are after you, okay? <laughs> um, she's like, me too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, Madonna hates me. Uh, you want to know real fear? Uh, try that on for size. Um, so that that is the one scene in the film that I do wholeheartedly recommend. And I hope it makes its way to the internet. Um, but aside from that, like, I just feel like we don't, you know, and it is, you know, interesting for people who want to know more about the complicated, you know, person who is Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, ultimately I'm still, I hate him so much. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, I, I am not totally sold on the value of what he's done ever. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Same. yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big thumbs down on him. And, and but what uh, about this movie? And on this movie, I'm going to have to say, I would also say, send it back. Mm hmm. Just because I just don't feel like all I got from this was again just like just feelings of oh god I fucking hate you so much. Yeah, um, if you don't if you don't learn anything from it, it seems like I it's mean, really pointless. I feel like I mean I did get you know I learned some things just in fact you know I you know, I have a better view of you know who he is now, and I do think it's interesting. I think that you know Patrice really should have just taken this if she was going to take the tack that she ultimately did, she should have just fully done it like that had the courage of her convictions and made the film that is more of a documentary about a documentary mm-hmm. um and also she really does just need to show her work sometimes because she makes these allegations and just expects everyone to believe them mm. and, and and you know if you want to win over like a cynic like me mm-hmm. then like show your fucking work because Especially like, a time like this where you know people um people are very cautious about what is real exactly uh, and what is fake so yeah absolutely it seems like a, a really important time right to... if you want to prove that you're more than just like a preacher to a, a choir of tinfoil mm-hmm. hats then you have to show your fucking work right um it's unrated but it would be rated r for language um thank you so much um that wraps up this episode of the binge uh be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you like it um on itunes or stitcher or wherever you get your podcast jason is uh on twitter at excess baggage i'm at fight balance thank you so much bye guys binging on movies with rebecca and jason you made it to the end that's amazing there goes the binge. binge